I'd like to begin this morning by first of all thanking you for your kindness, um, profound hospitality, uh, particularly want to share our great appreciation with the Lovings family. Uh, their Airbnb has just been wonderful. It's uh, very comfortable, very quiet, very conducive for study and meditation. And Cindy and I, you know, we, uh, we're just so appreciative, so grateful for God's people. And thank you for accommodating us in these days. It's been wonderful. Well, this morning, if you would, uh, take your Bibles and turn with me to that little epistle Toward the end of the scriptures, the book of Jude, the book of Jude, Uh, I want to talk this morning, I know that once again the title that has been promoted uh, during these days is Keeping in God's Love, but we want to talk about how this is probably the premier deterrent to apostasy, particularly in these last days. It's something that God has ordained by His mercy. You know, oftentimes when we read of warnings of judgment and, and these cautions that God gives us in the Scripture, once again we're shadowed in our thinking. We think um, this is terrible, this is negative, but every one of these things are expressions of mercy to keep us protected, to keep us preserved. And so uh, this warning that God gives us through the book of Jude is to protect the professing church from apostasy from the gospel. My conviction, brethren, before we read the text is I, I don't believe in one saved, always saved. I believe if saved, always saved. There's a world of difference. You got a lot of Baptists today, their mentality, well, one saved, always saved, and yet they've come up with their own breed of carnal Christianity to justify their lack of works. But if we're in Christ, we're created in Christ Jesus under good works. And therefore, by virtue of the fact that we have a saving faith that is not our own in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will persevere to the end. But God gives us these helps and He expects us to respond to it in faith through our efforts to keep the soul. So all that are being preserved by the power of God will persevere. And they that endure to the end, the same shall be saved. This is a very, very important message this morning. If you would follow with me as I read, beginning in verse number 17 of Jude Jude 17 through verse 21. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They say to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. 
To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. A lot of times people think, well, how terrible of me, how wrong of me to flee from the wrath to come because someone warned me of the impending doom that I might spend eternity in hell. So today people say that's not a real good incentive for repenting and coming to Christ. And I beg to differ. What's wrong with telling people that they're going to hell? This is what he says. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Now to Him who is able to keep you from falling, who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time now and forever. Amen. Can we pray once again together? Merciful Father, thank You for this warning. This is not encumbering to Your people. The commandments of the Lord are not grievous, they're not burdensome. I delight in responding to this exhortation. What a blessed, blessed warning this is. Father, in these days, I pray that more and more you might increase our sensibility of the love of God and help us to keep ourselves in it accordingly. Now, we would pray once again for clarity. Lord, I want to make this as simplistic and as clear as I can, but I know, Lord, that it's impossible for the people of God, for people in general, to possess unless the Holy Spirit comes and illumines. So please, give clarity to the praise of the glory of Your grace, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The epistle of Jude, much like the epistle of Hebrews, is epistle of warning, is especially relevant for the dark hour, brothers and sisters, in which we live in. You see, like Hebrews, we have these overtures, whether he's sketching the character of people that we're to avoid or whether it's just direct warnings, we find this compilation of infinite mercy that is set before us here in this little epistle. And although the word is very alarming, it reminds us that in wrath God remembers mercy. I'm so glad He does. It should cause us to dance. That in wrath God remembers mercy. Because you see, warnings from Scripture are, once again, tokens of God's mercy. Jude admonishes here those of his day to remember the apostles' prophetic warnings. For if they do not keep in mind these cautions, they would surely be led astray. And if they will in that day, how much more today? There's so much vying for our attention. 
There's so much that we can be easily absorbed with and drawn away from the gospel. As we sit around our table every Tuesday morning, our coordinators with heart cry, Brother Paul Washers at the head of the table, we talk about these various things that are dividing the church these days. We don't camp out on them. We're somewhat aware of them, but it doesn't absorb our thinking. And Paul repeatedly warns, he said, Gentlemen, it is the diversion of the enemy to get us away from the gospel. This is our chief ministry, our task in this hour, is preach Christ and Him crucified. So Jude says they must remember the evil nature of these men. In verses 18 and 19, their lives were characterized by ungodliness and sensuality and dissension. They thrived on it. And of all this, it was the result of being devoid of the Spirit. No Spirit. Where there is no holy living, there is no Holy Ghost. J.C. Ryle said, It is in Jude's exhortation here that we have such, once again, loving overtures from our Father. First of all, you'll notice the word keep. Keep yourself in the love of God. It's interesting, you know, I, I don't want to distract here, but it's significant to note that the tense of the verb is in the aorist middle imperative. You say, well, now what does that mean? Bear with me here. I, I try to make this very simple. It speaks of maintaining a position. In other words, it's an urgent word meaning to remain steadfast. Keep yourself in a position where God can affirm and bless you. Also, you notice the verb is modified, which the word modified means strengthened by three participles. Now, I remind you this morning... This is simple to grasp. Listen carefully. That participles are verbs that take on an adjective meaning, an adjective function. Therefore, what Jude is saying to us is that by building, praying, and waiting, believers continue in Christ's love, and therefore they protect themselves from the insidious plague of apostasy from the gospel. You see, you will note that the love of God in this text is His love for us. That's a no-brainer. But we need to be reminded of it. Not our love for Him here. He speaks of His love for us. And it is something that is profoundly subjective or experiential. How can you say that this is exclusively speaking of a doctrine, a theological concept, friend? Yes, we can keep ourselves in the truth of that doctrine. But this affords the experiential. It is not something that is merely intellectually attained, but once again, felt. It's something that I feel, I sense. The nature of this love speaks of a sphere, a place of blessing. Although His love, listen, never changes toward you and I, we may lose the sense of it. So what is Jude saying? 
He says, keep yourself in the place where God's love can affirm and bless you. Now, Matthew Henry made this comment, which I thought was right on. He said, the meaning here is take heed of throwing yourself out of the love of God for you. Of its delightful, are you with him now? Listen to this, this is wonderful. Of its delightful, cheering, strengthening manifestations, keep yourself in the way of God if you would continue in His love. So, it's like one pastor told me, he said, you know, Brother Don, I believe that God's love flows freely in this hour. I believe that the reality of God's love is accessible to us at this very moment. He said, the problem today in the modern church is like a cloud. Many have stepped out from under that cloud, that sensibility, that sense of God's love. So we get preoccupied, we get diverted, we compromise, we make concessions for sin, and we step out from underneath the cloud and we wonder why our heart is not in passion toward Christ and His truth. Amen. Unfortunately, many professing believers do not remain or keep themselves in the love of God. This is troubling. You see, they neglect those means of grace that Jude tells us affirm the sense of that love. These are edification, prayer, and eager anticipation, what Jude calls waiting on or looking for the mercy of God. Now sadly, brothers and sisters, their indifference and compromise led to this condition. You see, a condition that Puritan Thomas Mann refers to as, love this, a decaying sense of God's love. A decaying sense of God's love. In Mann's commentary on Jude, he lists the effects of this decaying sense followed by the evidence, watch this now, the evidence of immediate loss. And if we digress spiritually, to that condition, we stand on the brink of imperiling our soul. He says, first of all, the heart grows cold and careless. There is a diminishing desire for God revealed by a weakening reverence. Christianity is all casual. It's light. It's cool. We cease to feel the weight of its reality. There he says, is a decreased caution to offend God. Man then proceeds, this is very interesting, and boy, struck great conviction in my heart. It was a wake-up call, brothers and sisters. He proceeds to warn the nominal believer by sharing a list of those things that indicate the immediate loss of the sense of God's love. Here's what was so troubling to me. You can have a good academic understanding of theology. You can meet out in preaching and teaching, counseling, doctrine. You can go through the motions of interacting with believers. You know all the catchphrases. 
And yet your heart is stone cold. And even Reformed preachers apostatize from the Gospel. Just because you know the truth, friend, it doesn't guarantee anything. And that's why we should not ever divorce our understanding of doctrine from experiential walk, experiential truth. Manton gives these evidences of an immediate loss of the sense of God's love. Would you evaluate yourself this morning? Would you test your faith? He says God is forgotten. Can you believe? Come to the table, you pray the same old repetitious prayer, you meet out the same old phrases and words of counsel to people, and yet in the midst of it all, you forget God. Sin is unchecked. It ceases to be mortified. There's an indifference or no frequency for private communion with God. Al Martin said when he traveled as an itinerant all over the United States preaching, he said, I only met five pastors. And he was in Reformed churches. They had a devotional life with Christ. Only five. Well, they just thought, well, you know, I study the Scripture, I study hard doctrine, I study the text, I'm very expositionally oriented, but no communion with Christ. There is indifference or no frequency for private communion. No sweet thoughts of God any longer. No concern for glorifying God. No planning or plotting on how to be most useful for Him. No longer mourning over sin. When's the last time you wept over your sin? There's an insensitivity to offending God. No melting of hearts. Someone said that our heart ought to be so tender that if a leaf were to fall on it, it would leave an impression. Do you have that tenderness of heart? There's an absence of watchfulness. Can I tell you something, brothers and sisters? A lack of discretion can do many times more damage to your testimony and bring greater reproach upon the name of Christ than some blatant act of immorality. Be careful where you traffic. Be careful who you dialogue with. The world is watching. But there's an absence of watchfulness. Not zealous in the work of God. The ministry becomes a dull routinism. You're indifferent to temptation and carnal thoughts. Negligence in keeping the heart. A neglect of bridling the tongue. I'm out in the middle of a lake with a good friend of mine who's an evangelist. He's Arminian, but he really sharpens me. He's a big striper bass fisherman. Normally when I go fishing, they're never biting, and this was no exception. 
So it's very conducive for fellowship. And so he asked me, he said, what do you think about preacher so-and-so? And at that time, being the cynical, critical person I tended to be, I began to share with him all my quote-unquote concerns. And then finally, when I, I finished, I said, well, brother, I won't say any more. I'll just say that one of these days, that brother's going to have to give an account of himself to God. And when I said that, my friend at the other end of the boat looked at me and said, and yeah, you and I are going to have to give an account for everything that we just said about him. Conversations with others are idle and sometimes corrupt or profane. Man goes on to say you're more prone to anger and envy. Your public worship is performed and ritualistic. You just go through the motions. There's no heartfelt sense of God. You mouth prayers for spiritual help, but you don't expect God to answer. You intercede for others without any sympathy or compassion And when thanks is given, it is given without any esteem for the benefits of what God has rendered. Interesting, isn't it? You see, here's what I want to convey this morning, brothers and sisters, is when there is a felt sense of God's love, we will have an intuitive sense of that reality in our life. It makes you think differently. It makes you see things differently. It makes you speak differently. This is what I think Frances Abigail meant in her song, Take My Life and Let It Be. You remember one of those lines in the lyrics is, take my hands and let them move at the impulse of your love. That's available to you and I. You know in a heartbeat what grieves the heart of God. The sense of the love of God is a perseverance against apostasy. Don't miss that point. But it has been terribly overlooked in our day. Listen, men and women. Sadly, there is not a few who are drifting into the waters of perdition. What is perdition? It's an irrecoverable fate. It is impossible to renew them again unto repentance. So this perdition or irrecoverable faith is at the door in our hour because so many people are content to live independently of this ongoing profound sense of the love of God. But someone might ask, what is apostasy? Let me give you a definition in passing. Apostasy can be defined as a falling away from the faith, a falling back, an abandoning of the truth, a departure from the faith of Jesus Christ. Listen carefully. An apostate is one who professed faith in Christ, but in time drifts into a state of ungodliness. Now here's the clincher. This may or may not lead to an open renunciation of the faith. This is staggering. That there are some apostates that will continue to come to church. They sit there. But truth never moves them. 
An apostate is one who has an intellectual understanding of the gospel. Having professed faith in Christ, he evidences a change for a season which could last for many years, including a lifetime. But after a season of faithfulness to God, he begins to neglect Scripture and the way of holiness. His indifference leads to increased ungodliness. He may once again continue to attend church, but he takes on the role of a despicable hypocrite. These words are timely by Spurgeon. Listen to what he said. The making of a devil was an angel. The making of a son of perdition was an apostle. The making of an apostate is a professing Christian. And it's interesting that although the word apostate is not found in most Bible translations, the scripture is pregnated with warnings against it. As a matter of fact, I remind you that entire books such as Hebrews, Second Peter, and Jude are devoted to warning against this condition. I remember reading years ago Richard Wormbrand's account of Karl Marx. I don't know if you've read that or not. Karl Marx grew up in what as far as we know was a Christian home. His dad persevered to the end, continued in the faith. But not so with Karl Marx. When he was a young man, he made a profession of faith. He wrote a wealth of Christian literature. What's amazing, friend, in the light of this conference, he speaks of the love of God with such tenderness and reality. But suddenly his writings took on an evil slant. And he speaks of people in terms of destroy them. It earned him the nickname destroyer. What happened after that was people believed that he was involved in the occult. He turned away from Christianity. It's interesting, his home fell apart. Three of his close loved ones, I believe a couple of sons and a daughter-in-law, committed suicide. His family was victimized by malnutrition. He ultimately authored the Communist Manifesto. I heard a brother the other day online said, talking about Karl Marx, do you realize that probably more murders can be attributed to his writings than any other piece of literature in world history? Classic example of apostasy. Knew of the love of God, wrote about the love of God, but did he remain in the love of God? Absolutely not. You see, understand this morning that those who are genuinely in Christ can't apostatize. Being kept by the power of God, they persevere by faith unto eternal life. And listen, by obtaining it 
They do it by keeping themselves in the love of God. Listen, this is important now. This is the benefit of building themselves up in the most holy faith. Praying in the Holy Spirit and waiting or looking for the mercy of God, not only in His token gestures of mercy in this life, but anticipating the culmination of that mercy in Christ coming for them. This will not speak to you unless you have intention of going on the aggression. We must be proactive in our faith, brothers and sisters. Casual people never took heaven by storm. It's the violence that takes it by storm. So, the first thing that should be pointed out here is that there are three directives. These directives speak of self-discipline. What we see here is our responsibility to act. There's no room for apathy. If we don't discipline ourselves for godliness, we need not expect the promise of life to come to be fulfilled. You see, you will remember that's exactly what Paul encouraged Timothy with in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. He said, train yourselves for godliness. Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It has temporal and also eternal benefits, namely the saving of the soul. So listen quickly. What are the implications of these disciplines? What do they entail? Let me explain them to you just in passing. The discipline of building yourself up in the most holy faith means to subject yourself to those biblical sources that nurture faith. I'm on Facebook. But there's not much on Facebook that nurtures faith. Subject yourself to the local church. Subject yourself to the scriptures. Be intentional about it. Fight for it. Make things that are outside distractions to assembling with your people here in your local church or wherever you might attend church. Make those things non-negotiables. Like, listen, I'm hanging out with the people of God. We have an organized meeting that the elders have set up. I need to be there. Whether it's for fellowship, whether it's gathering around the Word of God for the preaching, whether it's fasting and prayer, I need to be there. And you force yourself. But you come away. With a greater consciousness of the love of God. Listen, to be strengthened in the love of God calls for body life. The exchange of love, encouragement, prayers, and ministry of the Word within the local church serve to strengthen our faith and to tear apostasy. You say, Don, I know that, but are you living that? Does that drive you? 
that I'll make no compromise because a compromise may lead to a digression that could result in the destruction of my soul or the destruction of those that I have stewardship over, namely my family. He says also, you're to pray in the Holy Spirit. These exercises modify keeping in the love of God. Build yourself up by subjecting yourself to the sources that edify, but secondly, pray in the Holy Spirit. It is not a reference to speaking in tongues. You've got to say that, friend, because I hear so many people that will use this as a reference to justify their tongue speaking. Rather, it means the Spirit exerts His influence upon us by directing and reminding us of those noble pursuits of holiness that we should pray for. It means that we pray accordingly to the Scripture, according to what Scripture has given us, we pray according to the purposes and promises of God. Then also, there is a discipline of waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now what does this speak of? It speaks, my friend, of aggression once again. Other translations, it's interesting, use the word look. I told you that already, but I reiterate. Which speaks, listen to this now, of an earnest expectation. In other words, I'm on the lookout for mercy. I'm on the lookout for God to show Himself in providence. I'm on the lookout of how God is setting up parameters in my life to guard me, to protect me, and to perpetuate my perseverance in the faith. And I'm looking and I'm living in the light of the ultimate mercy, and that is the coming of Christ for me as His purchased possession. You see, listen, implications of this do not exclusively entail an anticipation of the Lord's coming. They also entail a pursuit of the merciful overtures of God to help us in all things. Let us take heart, brothers and sisters. You see, these three distinctives afford a sense of God's love. Not talking about this, this abstract concept. I'm not minimizing the importance of studying the attribute of God, friend. That is the foundation. But I'm saying out of that, through a living faith, suddenly you come under a sense of the love of God that God expects us to abide in accordingly. And so here's how I wrap things up this morning. Listen, it is interesting that the Apostle John refers to himself, I mentioned this last night, as a disciple whom Jesus loved. Five times he says that in, the, in his Gospel. And when John records this of himself, once again, he's not implying that the Lord is a respecter of persons that he's playing favorites. His love extends to all of his elect, as you see in such passages. Listen to this. In John, John records this, Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, John 5 verse 11. John 13, 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It was John and the disciples that were seated in our Lord's presence. John 15.9 As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. 
And once again, there is a gathering of the disciples there. But listen, I've often wondered personally, why such a title? Like a self-bestowment. I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. If John didn't have this sense that he's being singled out as a favorite of God, why would he say such a thing? And I think John Piper cast some real light on this. He said, perhaps this is John's way of saying, my most important identity is not my name, but my being loved by Jesus, the Son of God. He is not trying to rob anybody else of this privilege. He is simply exulting in it. John is saying, I am loved. I am loved. I am loved. That's who I am. I am loved by Jesus. So listen, here's the parting comment. This opens up a whole different dimension of sensitivity to the Spirit's love or the Savior's love that the Spirit makes us conscious of. Because you see, friend, because John possesses this conscious sense of Christ's love, it makes one wonder if this is the reason that he says things about his walk with God that you don't find in the writings of any other author in Scripture. Listen to these. My, how they minister grace to my heart. John, because his walk has been heightened, he's entered into a different dimension. He's abiding in the reality of the cloud of God's love. And he says it's, it's increased his conscience. It's increased his insight and his accountability to truth in other areas. He says this in 1 John 2 and verse 5, But whosoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is fully matured, is perfected, and by this we know that we are in him. It's not the greatest form of assurance that you're a child of God. It's the highest form of assurance. When you're abiding under the love of God. He says such things as 1 John 5.3 For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. They're not encumbering. He says such things as love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world... You hear me? The love of the Father is not in him. He didn't say that the Spirit wasn't in you. He didn't say that the Father was not in you. He said the love of the Father is not in you if you love the things of the world. He says other things like seeing and caring for the needs of others. 1 John 3 and verse 17. Notice the tie of this with the love of God. He says, But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And then he mentions this. A manifestation of love for God's people is a sign of abiding in His love. 1 John 4, verse 12. 
No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love, there it is, is perfected. It grows in us. I mean, this guy was the object of love. It was not just some theological abstract. This is something that he felt, that he sensed, that he operated underneath. So don't forget this. Listen. Interestingly, these things speak to the reality of the sense of God's love. I have no doubt, brothers and sisters, that he enjoyed a dimension of it that authenticated his salvation but also it preserved his soul through all the temptations and tribulations that he was called on to endure. You see, from the early days of meeting the Master until finally his exile on the Isle of Patmos, this sense of love grew. And it was manifested in his relationship with others. Jerome said that when they would carry him on the bed because he could not walk any longer as an aged man, his constant repetition was, little children, let us love one another. Little children, let us love one another. Little children, let us love one another. Why? Because the man is still operating under this lively sense of the love of God. Likewise, this is my challenge to you this afternoon. Likewise, brothers and sisters, guard against a decaying sense of God's love and do it by building yourself up in this most holy faith. Praying in the Holy Spirit with His interest in mind and looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ both presently and in the world to come. Let's pray together. Holy Father, I pray that you might take the truth that we've looked at this morning and may through the power of your blessed Spirit, may it be riveted to our hearts. May it engender such conviction that we would resolve in our home, in our workplace, in every sphere that we traffic, to be conscious of your love and to abide under that sense consistently. Thank you, Father. There is no doubt in my mind that this must be the supreme preserving agent to keep us from perdition and ultimate apostasy from the gospel. Use it, O God, please, for your glory. For Christ's sake, amen.